Well, we do want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room for sure. Uh, I don't know about you, but you could probably resonate. I know I could uh, with several of those moments and several of those roles that we find ourselves in. Whatever the day throws our way and whatever we throw back at the day, sometimes we find ourselves in a number of different roles. And so whatever role you find yourself in, whatever moment you find yourself in as a dad, we do want to say thank you for uh, being an incredible dad. And so um, thank you so much and happy Father's Day for sure. Let's pray and then we'll dig into scripture this morning. God, we love you. We thank you for being the most incredible dad ever, giving us the example to live by. God, I pray for the dads in the room that we would be reminded of the challenge we received this morning, that you go before us and that you challenge us to be strong and courageous. As we lead our families, may we lead our family well. As we tune our hearts to yours, in Jesus' name, amen. When was the last time that you knew something was missing? We've all been there. Maybe it's a moment when you thought something should be here and it's not. Or it's a moment when you taste something and it's missing a very specific ingredient. You have a drink of tea and it's supposed to be sweet and it's just tea. I mean, excuse me, you know exactly what that's like if you're a sweet tea drinker like myself. It's something you've always heard about, but the moment that it becomes a reality, it's the wow moment. It's the moment you're sitting down at the family table on dinner night, maybe, and it is Thanksgiving, and you've got all the spread, you've got the turkey, you've got the dressing, you've got the cranberries. If you like cranberries, I can go without those. If you like cranberries, it's you got the green beans, you got the other vegetables, you got the mashed potatoes, and you got no gravy. What is mashed potatoes with no gravy, right? Something is missing. You've got broccoli, and you've got no cheese. Now, we all know that broccoli is only tolerable if it's swimming in cheese, Right? Your kids would at least say that for sure. Something is missing. It's the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You get the bread out of the pantry. You get the peanut butter butter out of the pantry. You grab the knife. You begin to slather the peanut butter on both breads or just one bread, depending on how you like to make it. Crunchy, creamy, it doesn't matter. And you go to the fridge and you open the fridge and you begin to look for the jelly only to find out that something is missing. And now you have a peanut butter sandwich. Now, if you're in the room and you love peanut butter, more power to you. But to me, I got to have the jelly in order for it to be a true PB and J, right? It's the moment when you go to Chick-fil-A. Now everybody's thinking about Chick-fil-A. It's a Sunday. Sorry, they're closed. They'll be open tomorrow. Everybody, you go to Chick-fil-A. And right now I understand there's this thing they call a condiment shortage. I get that. You go to Chick-fil-A, you order a 12 count nugget and a large fry with a large sweet tea, of course, because that's what I get. The sweet tea comes, it's perfect. You get the large fry, it's great. You get the 12 count nuggets, they're great. And they give you a singular sauce, right? Something's missing. We've we got to have the sauce, right? We've got to have the Chick-fil-A sauce. I get there's a condiment shortage. I totally understand that. You go and you get some chicken wings. I love chicken wings. If you can't tell, I like food. And you're going to now know this. And everybody's going to be thinking about food. You're not going to hear anything else. Hold on. You go to chicken wings, you get some chicken wings, you get eight, you get 10, you get 12, you get whatever. And they bring you this, the side of ranch and it's like this much. It's like a half an ounce, maybe. And it's gone within the first chick. I get it. Like you just need some ranch or perhaps blue cheese. If there's one place that gets the sauce thing right, it's Taco Bell. Oh no, <laughs> I got nothing. You know, it's, 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 Taco Bell gets the sauce thing right. 
You got like a plethora. You got 19 different sauces. You can ask for all of them and you can get 45 of each. They'll just dump them in the bag. Here you go. But you walk in and you get all these sauces, but there's no guarantee they're ever going to get the order right. Okay? You walk in for a taco and a Mexi melt and you walk out with a chalupa and a Mexican pizza. You're like, what in the world? Something's missing. Something is off. Today we're going to dive into the story of Jesus healing a man with a withered hand. And this guy's story would be summed up by the simple fact that something is missing. See, he's heard about Jesus. He's heard about his miracles. Perhaps he's even talked to people that have experienced his miracles, but he's never experienced them for the first time. For the first, he's never experienced them at all. And something is missing until he has an encounter with Jesus. And in this story, we find some people who are stuck in their religion. It's the Pharisees. They're stuck in their religion. They're blinded by their religion. And it's the story of them needing to get out of that religion and launch into the relationship. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. Your iPhones, your Apple, your iPads, whatever it is, anywhere in between, or a paper copy is totally fine as well. It'll also be on the screens. Mark chapter 3. Now, this same story is also found in Luke chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 12, all different accounts of the exact same story. And each of them give us a little bit different pieces as to what happened. We're going to camp out in Mark chapter 3 today. We're going to begin in verse 1. And here's what it says. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, the Pharisees, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill, but they remained silent. We've all been in that moment when we're guilty and we know it and we get asked the question, and what do we do? They remained silent and he looked, Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man with the shriveled hand, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And in that moment, his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus here is getting set up. He's getting set up. It's the moment when somebody walks up to you and says, here, smell this. You know good and well, you should not smell it, right? It's the moment when somebody says, hey, let's go snipe hunting. The people who are laughing get it. The people who aren't don't. Jesus is getting set up here. And the Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus. They've created laws around laws. The little background here was that healing was prohibited on the Sabbath. Unless it was feared that the victim would die within the next 24 hours. Obviously, this man has had a withered hand his entire life. 
and was in no danger of dying in the next 24 hours. Matthew's version of the story would say this. Again, Matthew chapter 12. It would, Matthew's version would point out that Jesus is in their synagogue. It's an away game. They're plotting against him. They're looking to see if for a reason to accuse Jesus. It's an away game. They've plotted. They've done their homework. He would also point out that you can save your stuck animals on the Sabbath. And so what the Pharisees have done here, around the Sabbath, they've created laws around the laws. But conveniently, if you're, you can't do all these things, but conveniently, if your animal were to get stuck, then you could help them out to get them unstuck. And they're setting Jesus up here not to see if he could heal on the Sabbath, but to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. It's not a question about his ability. They wanted to know if he would, not if he could. And what Jesus does here is astonishing. Normally, Jesus heals in private, off to the side, separated. But here he says to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And the Pharisees, stuck in their religion, they're stuck in their rules, they're incapable of recognizing that the very Messiah is in their midst. Something is missing. They miss out on this relationship because they're blinded by their religion. Something is missing. And the Pharisees here are asking the question, will Jesus heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus, in classic Jesus fashion, flips the script and says, in essence, will the Pharisees allow the Sabbath to be healed? In the midst of their rules, in the midst of their regulations, the Pharisees has forgotten that at the heart of love, at the heart of law, is love. The very reason why these rules and regulations exist is because of love. At the heart of the law is love. It's why Jesus would say in the verse that precedes all three, Matthew's version, Luke's version, and Mark's version, which we read. Mark chapter 2 verse 27 would say this. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Luke's version would point out that it, this man has a shriveled right hand. It's the working hand. He can't get a job because he can't work. He can't work. He's probably never rested an entire day of his life. He has to greet people with the dirty hand, with the left hand. And in this moment, it is a demonstration that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. See, Jesus breaks the rules for those broken by the rules. He changes the man not so he's free from Sabbath, but instead that so he is free to Sabbath. It's the story where this man has a shriveled hand and he experiences the something missing for the very first time. Something he's heard about now becomes real, now becomes a reality. 
Ernest Hemingway is a famous author of the 20th century. If you're a reader, you know good and well that he is an incredible author who can write a compelling story between its cover and in its pages. He is an American literary icon who's best known for his straightforward prose, for his use of understatement, and a few books, just to name a couple, would be The Sun That Also Rises, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and The Old Man in the Sea, which won him a Pulitzer Prize in 1953. The following year, he would win the Nobel Prize in 1954. He's an incredible author who could write a compelling story with the best authors of our time. The legend of Ernest Hemingway, the urban legend of Ernest Hemingway, if you will, would suggest that he was sitting around a table with some buddies, fellow authors, and they were comparing notes about writing this novel and that novel and that story and that story and this short story. And, and one of the guys spoke up and said, Ernest, we understand that you can write a novel with the best of them, but can you write a compelling story using only six words? And this urban legend, if you will, would suggest that, urban, uh, that, that Ernest Hemingway went home. He began to think, he began to chew on how he could write a compelling story using only six words. And this legend would suggest that the following morning in the newspaper would be the six words that would read this. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. A compelling story that we don't understand the backstory unless our brain begins to pin the story before these six words. We don't know the front story. We don't know what happens next unless our brain begins to fill in what happens next. But in those six words, we all know it is incredibly compelling. If we were to look at the story of Mark chapter 3, Matthew chapter 12, and Luke chapter 6, all at the same time, and we were to pull out these three characters and overlay a compelling six-word story on top of each of the three characters that we read about, what is their six-word story? How do we capture their story using only six words? How do we make it compelling using only six words? That's our challenge this morning that we're going to dive into. Capturing the story of the man with the shriveled hand, of Jesus, and of the Pharisees using only six words. The man with the shriveled hand, his six words perhaps would be hoping to be touched by God. At the heart of this story is a story of healing. At the heart of this story is a story of possibility. It's a story of grace and resurrection and life. This man needs to experience Jesus. He needs Jesus to come in and give him hope. And he's hoping to be touched by God. And if not a touch, perhaps just to hear his voice. We've all been there. We've been on an airplane, perhaps. And you hit the turbulence. Everything's totally fine. 
but you hit the turbulence. This is not just, hey, the seatbelt light's on, you better return to your seat kind of turbulence. This is the kind of turbulence that drinks are spilling, the stomach is going all the way through. Like, this is the kind of turbulence. You're sitting in the back and all the heads in unison are doing everything and you are freaking out. And what do you need? You just need the captain to come on and to guide us through and to tell us everything is going to be all right. If not to be touched, all we need is to hear his voice when things don't go as planned. If the man with the shriveled hands, six words, would be hoping to be touched by God, then Jesus' six-word story is helping in the work of God. It's also an opportunity and calling. It's a story that challenges us who are in faith to move from having faith in Jesus to having the faith of Jesus. What if what God wants us to hear today is to get us to to move from identifying with the man to identifying with Jesus? And what if he says, I don't want you to just be touched by my hands. I want you to become my hands. I want you to become my feet as you go into your everyday places and you show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. What if that's the challenge for us today is to not to identify with the man who needs a miracle, but to identify with Jesus who is inviting us to partner with him in the work of ministry. What would it look like for you to go into your everyday environments, for you to go into everyday work spaces and believe that through the spirit of God in you, God might use you to make people brand new. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17 would suggest if anyone is in Christ, he's brand new. The old's gone and the new has come. What if God wants to use us to partner with him in ministry to see people's lives changed forever? If you study scripture, you know this, that God's heart for the world always runs through a person. Always. It started with the beginning of time and everywhere in between. And I would submit to you today that God is not dependent on us, but neither is he independent of us. He wants to partner with us. He wants to use us. He wants us to be actively involved in life change. And the question is not only do you have faith in Jesus, but do you have the faith of Jesus? If the man's hoping to be touched by God and Jesus is helping in the work of God and the Pharisees are standing in the way of God. They're standing in the way of God. They should be pointing other people to God. In everything they do, they should be pointing people to God. Left and right, they're pointing people to God, but instead they're standing in the way of Jesus. And this story would remind us that there's not just one person in, in, in need of healing, but there's at least two. One guy has a need that everybody can see. It's easily identified, but this story reminds us that it's possible for us to hide our wounds under the lens of religion. And maybe the story is not about your withered hand, but maybe the story is about your withered heart. Maybe the story is that something is missing and that something is you because God wants to partner with you in the work of ministry to see lives changed forever. 
Maybe as a dad on Father's Day, just bringing it home. Maybe as a dad on Father's Day, you know the healing that's needed is in your family. And your six words as a father would be perhaps trying to not mess it up. Or just trying to keep it together. Or hoping to be the best possible. Or maybe your six-word story as a dad would be leaving my family a spiritual legacy. What six words would define your life? Perhaps we can look at the best dad ever, the best father ever, God himself. What did he do? He gave. God himself gave. John chapter 3, verse 16, so many of us know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If God's six-word story would be giving my only son for you. And we were to take our cue from the best father ever, then maybe our six words as dads would be giving my all for my family. What six words will define your life? What's the moment for you that something was missing now became a reality? In this story, it's the moment when something is missing becomes something present. It's the moment when the man with the shriveled hand hears the words for the first time, stretch out your hand. There's a connection directly with his faith to stretch out his hand and Jesus's healing power. This story is the moment that everything this man had hoped for became real. It's the moment when everything he's heard about becomes a reality. It's the moment when he experiences the real thing for the very first time, not just something he hears all about. I've told you throughout the course of this morning that I enjoy food. It's no secret. And that's because my wife is an incredible cook. I get to enjoy all of that. My, mo- my mother is an incredible cook. I got to enjoy all of that before moving out of the house. She can cook anything from baking in the oven to grilling on the grill to smoking, you know, r- brisket and ribs and anything and everything in between, including desserts. I don't really have a sweet tooth. I would prefer to just have multiple steaks and more potatoes, right? That's what I want. That's my dessert with a side of dessert. Some of you guys can resonate. Some of you guys are like, no, get, the, get that out of the way. I'll take all of the desserts. There's a handful of desserts that are my weak spot. One of them is my mother's red velvet cake. Now, this is not just your store-bought red velvet cake that you can walk into any store or any bakery and buy off of the shelf. This is not just the, the, the kind of red velvet cake where you are like, oh man, that looks like every other red velvet cake. It's just chocolate with white icing. No. This is the red velvet cake that literally takes hours to make and the secret is in the frosting. And if you speed up the frosting process, it becomes clumpy and disgusting. It's got, it's got flour and all kinds of weird stuff in it. It's, it's, it's weird. It, if you speed up the process, it just doesn't work. I could tell you all about this red velvet cake. Not only could I tell you about it, I could actually read you the recipe. How do you make this incredible red velvet cake? 
What do you do with this incredible red velvet cake? I can tell you there's shortening, there's sugar, probably a whole lot of sugar. There's eggs, there's vanilla, there's butter, a whole lot of butter. There's a whole bunch of stuff in this. It's a process. You got to cook the icing. You got to let it cool. You can't speed it up. You got to do all all this stuff is on the recipe. I could tell you this. I could paint the picture for the red velvet cake. I could tell you how to make the red velvet cake. But here's the truth. Until you taste the real thing, I'm missing out. Now, some of you guys are not going to hear anything else I say for the rest of the day. But I could tell you all about it. I could tell you how to make it. I could probably even try to make it and fail miserably. But until you taste the real thing, the moment something I hoped for became a reality something I'd heard about became real not just the ingredients not just the picture but when you taste the real thing this man with the shriveled hand it's the moment when something is more than just what he hears about maybe what he sees Maybe what others have experienced. It's the moment when he experiences it for the first time. It's the moment when he experiences what is missing for the first time. And our challenge is not just to hear about an encounter with Jesus, but to experience it for yourself. If you're a believer in the room and you've experienced what that healing power is like, Your challenge is simple. Will you partner with God in the work of God? And if you're in the room and you know that something is missing, maybe you know that there's never been a moment in your life when you've said to Jesus, God, please heal me. Please heal my withered heart. And you're still exploring what it means to taste the real thing. You know the ingredients. You know what it's supposed to look like. You've heard about it, but you've never tasted the real thing. And the challenge for you from Jesus is this. Will you let Jesus heal your withered heart? And your six-word story, or perhaps more of a six-word question, is will you let him heal you? Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us that what we earn for that sin, the wages of sin, is death. It's a withered heart. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God. Healing. To experience it for the first time. To experience the real thing. To not just talk about it. Romans 10 verse 9 would say, 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Then you will be healed. Then you will taste the real thing. And the question this morning for all of us, in six words, will you let him heal you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that there's a direct correlation between our faith and your desire to heal us. That we have to do something. It's active, it's not passive. That when you call us up in front of everyone and you tell us to stretch out our hand, may it be a picture of our withered hearts being made new. May we answer the question, will you let him heal you? God, we love you. We thank you for it's in Jesus' name.